Hi there. Welcome to the Pondering Episodes. Have you got thoughts and questions about faith, the Bible, church, and life in general? Well, so do we. In these episodes, we aim to have conversations where we wrestle and embrace all that this journey of faith brings. Do we have all the answers? No. But we're willing to ponder the big and small things and have honest chats that may bring about new ways of thinking. In this episode, our host and the creative director here at Good Life, Hannah Bartle, is chatting with lead pastor Mike Hardy about how they've gone about framing the Liberating Revelation series for our Sunday gatherings. It's been such an interesting and challenging series, and this episode was an awesome space to tackle the big themes, symbolism, and the point to the book of Revelation. Hi, everyone. Hi, Mike. How you doing? Good. Excellent. We are here. We're four weeks into our teaching on Revelation, and so we've got our pondering episode where we've decided we're going to talk about some of the things that we've been talking about on Sundays and um, have a chat about the really easy book to understand that is Revelation. Mm, it's so easy. I don't know what it's going to be a pretty about. short conversation. Yeah, just think. <laughs> it's um. So, I guess let's have a chat about maybe the overall message which again has its parts anyway um but maybe just chatting overall how people can kind of understand how to come to the book of revelation like what's it's the last book of the bible but what how do we even approach it Mm. if you want to share what you what you think yeah okay well this is my best attempt in a casual conversation about this but um first of all it's important to understand this book um is what we call apocalyptic literature, uh, which uses all kinds, it's a certain type of genre of literature. So you can't read it just like any other piece of literature. Mm. This is not history per se. This is not, um, you know, a letter in the traditional sense. There is particular language and symbols that's used all throughout this, Mm. uh, which was a style of writing that was understood in the era in which it was written. So how we approach it with modern... um, ears and eyes is going needs to be seen through that lens first of all but fundamentally at a big picture level it is a as it's called a revelation or it's like a peeling back a revealing of um what god through jesus wants us to understand uh is his message to these churches so john who's the person who's seen the vision he sees this vision, he hears from Jesus, he writes down what he hears and he sees, and it begins as a letter sent to seven different churches that were actual churches in this era, in the kind of western part of Turkey as we'd know it these days. And um, this is going to be a circular letter that goes around, they're all going to hear this overarching message, and they're going to hear the message that's said to each of the seven churches. Mm. And so at a high level, it's kind of broken down into an introduction um, a message from Jesus to each of the seven churches. And then it goes to this sort of central theme of the whole letter, which is around the throne and the image of God that Jesus wants us to understand. And then it goes into a whole section of um, judgment and discipline. Then with this sort of crescendo of a vision of God's restoration for all of creation. Mm. And so kind of that's it at a high level. Yes. And I think it would be important to note that 
there are other examples of this type of literature, I guess, that we can yeah. find even in New Testament. Like in ancient Near East, there was often this type of literature. But Daniel, I guess the book of Daniel is yep. another example. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the people think when they're reading Revelation in isolation, oh, what are all these new images? But these weren't new because he's mm. referencing so many of the images from the book of Daniel. Yeah. So this was the kind of language that was, at least to Jewish listeners, yeah. uh, familiar to them. Yeah. They kind of like, oh, we know what he's saying when he says that. And also for the Gentile population, again, a lot of the uh, symbolism or metaphors of um, armor and battles and all that type of thing, even yeah. some of the descriptions of Jesus are similar to descriptions that the Gentiles would have known from Greco-Roman culture right. and stuff. So he yeah. does it, he mixes the two yeah. to kind of create a picture. Same style, but contextual to that to, community yeah. in that era. So yeah. there was a little bit of something for everyone. Yeah. Cool. Mm. So we, I guess, um, have been looking at the idea of revelation and that there are there is this, I guess, a battle that is happening within Revelation. And again, it's this symbolic representation of, and we've got these images of the dragon and of Babylon, and then we have the lamb. Do you want to talk about why does John kind of set this up? What's he trying to say using that imagery? Mm. Okay, so, well, I mean, there's so much to say about this. There is. Um, <laughs> But uh, I like the way that Scott McKnight kind of unpacks this, almost like this idea of two different teams. There's, there's Team Dragon, which we would understand typically as the devil or Satan, the accuser. And he has his kind of minions, which is the two beasts. And then, you know, all the different other characters that kind of make up Team Dragon. And then we have uh, Team Jesus, which in the book of Revelation is the lamb. Mm. And uh, there are a whole bunch of, uh, characters and people that are connected to the way of Jesus and the way of the Lamb. And one of the huge, I suppose, even ahas for a lot of people as they start to read this book is that um, John is wanting us, well, ultimately Jesus is wanting us to know through John's writing that there's an image of Jesus, there's an image of God that they want the churches to really have their worship and their lives centered around. Mm. And it is fundamentally the image of the lamb. Mm. And so we have in chapters four and chapters five, this great vision of the throne room mm. where we kind of get this like inside uh, symbolic look at who God is and what God is like. And there's this scenario in chapter five where there's going to be this scroll with seven seals. It's going to like be this unfolding revelation of How's this grand plan of um, God's going to unravel? How, how's it going to play out? And they're all looking for who's the one who can open the seals. And the, the, the story goes, no one's worthy. And then finally someone says, yes, someone is worthy. It's the lion of Judah. And so this is a kind of a symbolism of uh, the fact that Jesus comes from um, the, um, the tribe of Judah. And everyone knew that symbol. But the... The fascinating thing that takes place is that when John goes to look for the lion, he doesn't actually see a lion. Mm. So it is the lion of Judah. It is Jesus, the Messiah. But when he looks to see what is this lion going to do and who is he, 
he only sees a slaughtered little lamb. Yeah. And this is the profound shift that I think centers the entire way we read the book and how we engage with it. And it's this idea that 28 times in the book, the lamb of God is mentioned. And the line is only mentioned that one time with that kind of reference to the, the backstory of yeah. where is Jesus as Messiah? Where, what's his origins? Where's he come from? And so I think what's happening is that um, God is wanting us to see through this message that the way we see God totally impacts the way we live our lives. Mm. The way we, who we worship will be who we become. Mm. So is our image of who God is correct? Mm. And if you're holding on to this idea that God is this, um, this lion-like character who's going to devour his enemies and you're holding on to that image, that can impact the way that you live your life and how you worship and how that yeah. plays out. Yeah. But if you realize, oh, actually, this line is in fact, he's a slaughtered lamb, which tells us something about the nature of God and the way that God does things, that's going to change everything. Yes. And so why, why the lamb? I guess for those who have been in christianity for a while we might get the symbolism of it um but why a lamb well i mean that's another um kind of (laughs) that's a big question too um but i mean the lamb symbolizes this um sacrificial idea that was very much part of the hebrew story Mm. um and then we see in the new testament that so in the old testament people would sacrifice a lamb as a symbol um of you know sacrifice and offering to god in the hope of forgiveness of sin and um being cleansed but now we see in jesus he's the final and the ultimate sacrifice he's the complete sacrifice and this symbol is jesus the messiah god in human form his nature his character everything about who he is the way he dies is like a lamb and so um, he's, he's not literally a lamb. No, that's right. But this is such a powerful image that we need to see. If we want to know what God is like through Jesus, we need to know he's lamb-like. Yeah. And he's not just lamb-like. He's a slaughtered lamb who actually is victorious. Mm. And that's where the victory lies. The victory lies in his sacrificial loving death. Yeah, and I think there's such a theme of victory in Revelation, um, but it's just such a counter. The idea of victory that John's getting at is so different to what the first century church would have understood victory or first century culture would have understood as victory, living under Roman rule where victory was won through, through war, through conquering, through right. domination, through innocent lives being taken for power, for power's sake, John is flipping it. And so victory looks very different. And I think that's still today so applicable, I would say, particularly in the world we're living in at the moment of what even just being victorious, yeah. if we want to label, you know, we want to say, you know, we're victorious what that actually means versus maybe what we have sometimes 
Mm. This idea of Jesus not as the lion coming to devour, but as the lamb being victorious is That's right. a huge change. Yeah, and look, um, Paul speaks to this in his letters in the New Testament when he's sort of saying that um, the ways of God are not like the ways of man. Mm. The wisdom of God is not like the wisdom of man. And so we gravitate, which is the entire history of the world, towards power and conquering and victory in the sense that there's uh, someone stronger has taken out someone else. Mm. Whereas this whole idea of what God is like and even how Jesus even dies, I mean, even to his own disciples, this was like, hang on, this yeah. is not how the story is supposed to work. Yeah. But that's because they haven't yet seen God's way yet. Yeah. That God's way is always love. And it's never the way of violence and um, forceful control over others. Mm. Which is what they wanted. That's what they that's, wanted because they That's what they thought the Messiah would be. Right. They yeah. were like, we've been conquered by our enemies for millennia. Now, finally, our Messiah is going to come and he's going to triumphantly, in the sense of a warrior, yeah. take over and establish this new kingdom. And he's going to do it by force. Yeah. And then he doesn't. Yeah. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. And, the, and then again, we see this. And it's kind of hard to get your head around it, especially if you grow up in the world we do in the West where, you know, we celebrate through movies and everything is always about who's the more powerful. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's our gladiator won the that day. won. Yeah. 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 And yet this, this story is, oh, this guy dies and that's where the victory is. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Now, obviously yeah. he's defeated death and sin on the cross and he's resurrected mm. but it's the way he does it it's sacrificial love yeah that's yeah. the crazy amazing yeah. thing and i think when you look at even when john writes to the seven churches the ones that are suffering are the ones that he says you know like keep going because it's it's and paul writes about the same thing is that um, in the suffering and in, in that endurance and patience is when you're actually following the cruciform right. way of God. Yep. Like it's it's that um, and it's not in the everything going well part that is considered victorious. It's the, the endurance and the patience through suffering. And right. it's just such a – it's so challenging. I don't know. I find it it's so incredibly challenging, challenging yeah. to – to view it that way it was challenging even for jesus in his humanity yeah in the garden of gethsemane when he is sweating blood mm. and he's stressed at a level we can't comprehend and he says father let this cup you know be taken away from me this yeah. this burden that he's going to carry and yet he says not my will but your will yeah it's faithfulness yeah we could get into i guess all the symbolism and and because I think there is so much, um, you know, like the number sevens, you know, like I think a lot of people and, and you know, lots of, lots of people have different ways of interpreting it. A lot of people want to read into all the numbers that have to do with things. There's a lot of different interpretations about stuff and, and those kinds of things. And um, one of the things that I find really interesting is along with this book being an apocalyptic form it's also considered a prophetic book but like we've talked about in our minor prophets talks it's prophetic not in the sense of predicting 
things that are going to happen in future, which I think is a very common reading of Revelation, that it must be a prophecy about things that are going to happen, but prophetic in that it is a calling out to the people of God to repent, to change their thinking on things and to continue following in that way, in the same way that the prophets did in the Old Testament. So John is doing the same. So even when we hear that it's a prophetic book, even in that sense, it's a different take on what prophetic is. It's not an oracle that's seeing into the future. It's different in that sense. But there is a lot of symbolism. There is a lot of things that people read into. So like, for example, the number seven, Mm -hmm. what is significant? Because it appears a lot. Yeah. Why, Why the number seven? There's seven churches, seven spirits. Seven trumpets. Yeah. Seven bowls. Seven yeah, bowls. Three, there's three lots of groups of sevens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the number seven in this style of writing represents completeness. Um, in other words, um, God's perfect way, the yeah. unfolding of God's intention. Yeah. Um, and so even seven churches is, is this sort of symbolism of um, the community of faith. mm and so all the different symbols, whether it's sevens, whether it's twelves that represent either the tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles um, or 144,000, which comes out of those twelves. Um, all these numbers meant things to the people that were hearing this letter for the first time mm. where they would say, oh, we know what Jesus is saying in this through mm. this letter. And so um, I think it's important for us to not get too hung up in trying to go okay because there's this whole thing i think we're going to talk about around yeah. dispensationalism yeah. and trying to take um these numbers and almost like put them onto our contemporary times and see yes. from that perspective yes yeah and i think we will we will go down that path yeah and i think also this yeah so all of that symbolism and i i think i wanted to kind of also address the idea that like why does john do this why doesn't he just come straight out and say, hey, like resist the way of the Roman Empire and don't go following? Why doesn't John just come out and say that? Why does he use this imagery? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I don't ultimately know because I haven't asked John yet. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but my understanding uh, from what I've learned and researched and you know, what lots of people say is that this is the power of symbol. Symbol actually goes beyond even the current thing we're talking about. Mm. And we see this in poetry. It's like you hear a poem that meant something to the person that wrote the poem, but then the kind of language that's used can actually go well beyond that particular context. Yes. And so he could have said Rome, but then everyone reading after the seven churches would have gone, oh, that was their context. That was only for them. And that means nothing yeah. for us. But the moment you you use the symbol of Babylon instead of Rome, now you're talking about all kind of empire, Mm. any kind of empire or circumstance that looks like what we know Babylon was or what we know Rome was. How is that now in our context? How do we see this? Yes. And I think it's that it ties into even Israel's history and it's that con it was that constant struggle and going the way of the world and worshiping, that or worshiping god which is again what revelation is about 
Um, and I think with symbol too, um, as an English teacher, I would always say to my kids, show, don't tell. So when you're writing creatively, it's like a rule. You show me through description, through metaphor, through imagery, through similes. Show me through figurative language what's happening and how mm. the character is feeling and what's going on yep. rather than saying it was a really hot day mike felt hot <laughs> that's telling me saying something like as mike pulled out the lawnmower and he saw the shimmering of the road and the sweat dripping down his forehead he thought this was a bad idea so it's like yeah. show me rather than telling me and yeah. i think it's it's been something that creative writers have done right you know forever and i think john is doing the same thing it's yeah. a lot it's far more powerful to use metaphor and symbol and all of this figurative language right. because it says something deeper than just you know i think it also engages it not only engages your mind uh and your your you're thinking about something from a factual perspective, it actually ends up becoming like a visceral experience. Yeah. You can't read the book of Revelation and not feel, whoa, this is heavy. Mm. There's a lot going on here. You know, this is intense because it's using powerful language to jolt us yeah. deliberately to feel something so that we respond to the actual point. Yes. And yet... The whole letters themselves, even though they use all that, are incredibly um, discipleship focused, you know, which, which is yeah. just a beautiful thing. It was yeah. like John wanting to, to disciple these Christians in these churches, but just doing so in a really different way, yeah. which, yeah, I think is pretty cool. Mm. So if we let's go down the and we will use words like dispensationalist or sensationalism or rapture, those types of things. Um, let's follow that trail, I guess, and talk about what what is dispensationalism. First, let's go that, that, that way first. What is it? Yeah, so dispensationalism was a way that some Christians, and not this is not historically also the most common way throughout history that people have understood the book of revelation no it's not so this That's is really right. it's important very to understand contextual to who who would you say and I, I guess it's where it's also originated from but contextually and what nations probably know this thinking? predominantly the united states closely followed by uh you know canada the uk australia western mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. countries that have um, their churches, or Protestant churches in particular, have come out of a, a strong uh, evangelical uh, movement. Um, their approach to reading, and we're talking in the last 150 years, to yes, reading it's the very book of modern. Revelation yeah. and interpreting apocalyptic literature was this idea of dispensation. So they saw the, um, the seven churches as seven periods of time throughout church history. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of breaking down, oh, this section of history is was this particular dispensation. Yeah, so Here's Ephesus was. was Ephesus represents this part of history. Right. And Smyrna represents the Middle Ages or whatever it would right. be. That's the idea, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And and that and again, that's a very modernist understanding. And it and I think if we're gonna do and this is all of our journey, so 
I don't claim to be an expert on this. This has been my own unfolding journey too, mm. realizing when we come to scripture, we have to be so careful that we don't do what is called in theological circles, eisegesis, mm-hmm. where we read into yeah. the scripture our context. Yeah. We actually do exegesis, which is where exegeting we are uh, understanding who was this scripture written to, what was the context, what did it mean to them at the time, and now in the light of that, how what might we learn something yes. from that too? Yeah. What's the point, the principle that applies in our context, even though this was the context? Yes. And that's going to save you a whole lot of yes. pain. It wasn't written to us, but it's still written for us, right? Exactly. It's the idea. Exactly. And this yeah. is where it's a little bit tricky when it comes to even dispensationalism because there are some aspects to which at different points in history, you could say, oh, we can see how this is applying in this mm. point in history. Yeah. But to use that as the frame to interpret the book starts getting you off on a very dangerous pathway. Yes. And what what would be and there's we can go uh, and talk about this more, but like we were saying, it's a very again, it came out hundred say hundred and fifty years ago, a very Western and a very American center of even just the world itself. It's a very American centric type thing. So even the periods of church history that they address still only address kind of a Western civilization church mm. history. That's right. It doesn't ca- take into account, you know, the rest of the world yeah. and what was happening in Christianity throughout all the different nations, exactly. throughout, Eastern you church. know, indigenous cultures, <laughs> Africa, all those kinds. Yeah. yeah, Africa, Asia, all of those, those all get discounted in in this idea because it purely focuses on right. just your European and American church history. Which is all they knew. Which is all they knew, yeah. but it, therefore that's where you start to go, right, well, here's where things fall apart. That's right. Okay, so what then has been the effect, do you think, with this type of thinking? How has that kind of shaped maybe modern, and not all denominations, but I would say a lot of evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic, a lot of those denominations, which we have both grown up in, Mm -hmm. so we've experienced it. How has that affected, and dispensationalism, how has it affected maybe our understanding of this text yeah well i mean look people are going to have different experiences of how they heard this and experienced this um in part it was we just focus on some parts Mm. that we thought was relevant and discard other parts and then using similar approaches to reading scripture we would then apply that to reading certain types of passages and again it's it's reading into um the scripture what we're seeing around us and experiencing and going oh this must mean that yeah and this is how we've ended up with all kinds of theologies around um the rapture and you know the antichrist and the battle of armageddon and all the hot topic issues that are extremely mm. popular mm. and exciting but actually maybe a very different understanding of what john was getting at when he actually recorded this this vision yes and it's lent itself and it's probably fed into the fear narrative that seems to come yeah. into play in in particularly, again, I think Western Christianity for a lot of people. There's a underlying current of fear 
that drives faith almost that right. there's and so it kind they it all kind of feeds each other this that kind of thing and yeah well fear leads to escapism and theologies that um, protect us and help us to escape the things that we're afraid of yes which gets us way off our core mission and purpose of being faithful disciples of Jesus in the world that yeah. God is going to redeem and restore and make new. Yes. And our role in that. Yeah. So you end up with a disengaged church that has a part gospel that focuses on helping people escape the fear factor mm. of being left behind in mm -hmm. a rapture theology um, or missing out. And... Uh, so then people are responding to something that isn't even core to the gospel. Yeah, that's right. And um, I know and I've heard it a lot. It's kind of like, oh, who who cares about what's going to happen to the earth? Like, And we've talked about this before about who cares about taking care of the planet or whatever right. because we're all just going to get out of here anyway yep. and we can just leave this planet to burn. That's that's, right. that's been the thinking. It's been... A, leg a horrible legacy from the last 150 years is just this idea that we don't really need to be responsible for taking care of anything because mm. we're going to get out of here. Yeah. And and that was exactly my story going yeah. up. People had stickers. I still remember um, someone in my church, a young adult in my church, getting in their car and the sticker sitting on the passenger side in front of me that said that this driver may disappear at any moment, <laughs> which is a reference to the rapture when Christians yes. sort of float up into the sky and go off to be with Jesus. And um, so that was like a terrifying thing, especially if you didn't know what that meant. Yes. Um, but this idea then that I was so deeply embedded in, like that's all I knew. Mm. So when recycling kicked in as a way to look after mm. or oh, yeah. the idea of planting trees. Yeah. Um, it or just seemed not important at all. Totally. Right? I yeah. was like, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. Like let's yeah. just – Let's just get people saved. Exactly. So all they that can matters is get raptured yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. we're all sweet and we're out of this place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And if yeah. you follow that line of thinking, I mean, it makes sense. Yes, totally. If you believe that that's what's going to happen. That's right. And we've used the word rapture and I think it's we probably need to address what that means. Yep. Um, and again, where that idea has come from. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you want to share? Yeah. Well, look um, – if you want to go back and hear the details of how we unpacked yeah. this in the first message of this series and also again in the second, uh, in both those uh, messages, we sort of unpack this. Yeah. Um, but at a, at a kind of general level, this idea of the rapture, which is a phrase that doesn't actually appear in scripture. It's not actually even in the book of Revelation. Correct. Yes. Uh, which a lot of people go, oh, really? For such a big thing, it's mm -hmm. not even there. It's not there. Um, it's a very different story. But uh, where the rapture idea comes from is this passage in 1 Thessalonians that talks about um, the followers of Jesus going up to meet Jesus in the clouds when the trumpet sounds. And so a lot of people have read into this, even though that's metaphorical language, we are going to literally leave earth and we're going to go up into the clouds when Jesus comes mm. back. And mm. it's like, well, hang on, is that he's coming back or is he then coming back again? How many like returns yeah. are there yeah which is another complex thing of this yes. <laughs> it's a problem yeah um and then we're going to escape either the coming tribulation or half of the tribulation depending on whether you're a pre-tribulation mid-tribulation or post-tribulation tribulation just means trial 
a time of suffering, yes, right. uh, of challenge in the world, um, where the impact of you know God's discipline and judgment is being experienced, mm. and you know tough things going on. So this idea is then based off that verse. Now there is another thinking that the idea of the rapture comes out of Matthew chapter twenty-four in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about. Um, the the end times as far as judgment is concerned mm. and how God is going to deal with evil in the world. And uh, part of the, the interesting thing is Jesus uses a metaphor and a story that relates back to Noah, the ark and the flood. And he uses that as this sort of symbol and idea that everyone's familiar with. And he talks about God's judgment as being like a flood that will come and deal with evil and those mm. who refuse to repent. And they, and this idea that one person will be washed away and one will be left behind. Mm. Now, all that actually means is that the ones who will be left behind are the righteous mm. and those who refuse to walk in the way of love and the way of Christ, they will be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. However, historically what happened was this whole idea of rapture took off because a girl in Scotland is in this kind of revival meeting and she has this vision and she sees all these Christians based off that verse in Thessalonians kind of going up into the clouds. So she tells this vision to the preacher. The preacher's John Darby, who's part of the Brethren Church at the time. He goes over, he likes this idea. He goes, oh yeah, that makes sense with that verse. Goes to the US, tells this idea and this vision to D.L. Moody, who was a famous evangelist, Mm. who he also latches on and says, yes, we've got to tell people about this. This is so important. And this starts to take off and they call this the rapture. So yeah. the, you know, the, the leaving of where we are to go and be with Jesus and it becomes super popular. And then you have the Schofield reference Bible comes out in prints in Matthew chapter 24, mm. a heading, which is not actually in the scripture that says Jesus predicts the rapture. Yeah. Which when you read the story, it's the opposite, it's the opposite. of it. The ones left behind are the ones who are following yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And so, again, people then come to that. They yeah. read a, a modern English version yeah. and they've they got this idea in their head and now they're reading that into what they read. And so this idea is just taken off. Yeah. Now, the tricky thing is what does that passage in 1 Thessalonians mean, which is the only verse that has any reference to this. Yes. And so the idea is that when Paul's talking about this, he's not talking about Christians literally leaving the earth to go up and meet mm. Jesus in the clouds. It's metaphorical language to speak about almost like a royal welcome, yeah. where in its day, the people would go out to welcome the king yeah. or the emperor or the warrior yeah. when they come back to the city, Yeah, which is the grand story of the gospel. Yes, Jesus is coming back as a victorious king because of his death and resurrection to redeem and restore all things. And as he comes back, his faithful followers are going to meet him, welcome him and usher him back into the city of God. Yes. That's all it means. Yes, that's right. And once again, Paul's using like John, symbolic, like it's a scene, like we would, if we were going to quote it, like talk about a film and a movie, we, it's the same idea. It's like, right. oh, we all understand that when we see the lone rider on the horse, it means this in a yep. movie that something's going to happen. That's Paul right. does the same thing. John does the same thing. Yeah. Yes. And if I make a reference to Gallipoli in a contemporary sense, we yeah. all know, oh, you mean like a place you of great that. battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's yeah. that same thing. So the, the the writers that Paul is writing to, they know that backstory based yeah. on their culture. Yeah, because they so have they know lived it. They've been in it. They see right. it. They've had to live through that. Yeah. So and it's that idea of the way that you you welcome in these empire these emperors or these people who conquer. Yeah. That's what that's how it's going to look when Jesus. Yeah, yeah, comes back in. And I think it's also important for people to understand what's that con- very often going on throughout the entire scripture from the Genesis creation account, which is a counter narrative to um, Babylonian and other cultures' um, creation stories. Yeah. yeah. Which is a challenge to say there's a better way. Yeah. There's a more beautiful story here. Yeah. And when you see that all the way through the scripture, you, you see this constant. Um, and this is what's happening in the book of Revelation. This is what's happening in Jesus' teaching and in Paul's writings. They're referencing their context, mm. but flipping the script. Mm. Now the Messiah is actually a slaughtered savior, unlike the warriors of their day. Yeah. Now in the book of Revelation, um, the city of God has the same specs as and dimensions as Rome did, yeah. which is a way of saying, hey, the new city of God is a replacement mm. of Roman Empire. Yeah, because that's what they knew. That's like right. they didn't live in a world where they knew about any other type of government or anything. Yeah, they're yeah. writing contextually for and using their current situation yeah. to understand what yeah. what God's real purpose and, and what that looks like about his kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And once you kind of remove that rapture narrative... It just makes so much more sense. It does. The, it abs- the whole book suddenly goes, ah, oh, this okay. is okay, and you can read it in the same way that you read the letters that Paul writes to his churches, and it's yeah. you see the the discipleship and the continual pointing back to who Jesus is yeah. and what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus's way. And I think, you know, those seven letters right at the beginning, they set that whole thing up. The whole purpose is each one is addressed, each church is addressed, but then it's it's a collective message of just this, this heart of wanting to make sure that the followers of Jesus knew this is what it looks like to follow him. Don't yeah. get sidetracked and don't yeah. get, you know, sucked into how... At this point in time, Rome is trying to say this is how you're to live. This is what it looks like. Mm. But continue to follow Jesus's way. Right. So I just and once you understand that, you go ah, okay. Like the the book the book of Revelation suddenly becomes something that is filled with hope. Right. And and with it's not something to be scared of. And I think that people have often read it and gone. I had someone make you know say to me the other day, oh, oh I've tried to avoid that. Mm. And this is someone who's worked in ministry. Oh, I've just avoided that. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, because yeah. if you if you've got to come with it with this idea that it's all about the world just going, you know, Jesus is going to come back and everyone's going to get destroyed and it's just going to be a big thing and maybe we'll get out of here if you're good enough, yeah. if you love Jesus enough. Whatever that looks like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just... Um, it is a challenging book because it's a challenge to us around our faithfulness. Yes. Faithful um, witness, right? Faithful witness mm. in following the way of the Lamb, mm. worshipping the Lamb, being transformed by mm. that image and how we're going to live. 
as we play our part in what God is ultimately going to do in restoring and bringing about new creation. Yeah. Um, but when you realize, um, oh, okay, I now can see what's happening here. As you said, the amount of people that say, oh, it's too hard basket or I'm scared of it or it freaks me out. Mm. It doesn't have to when you understand. Mm. Actually, this is just what's already happening in the world now. Yeah. And this is a call for us to rise up and be faithful to who God has called us to be. We have a role to play. Yeah. And the victory relies with Jesus. Yes. He will be victorious and we get to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think then for us and we're only, and you know, we're halfway through at the moment in our teaching of it, but maybe even in these last four weeks for you, what is something that has been the challenge? Like as you've read it, what is something that's kind of resonated with you in that message that John is, has written Mm. to those churches, but still for us? Oh, honestly, I mean, where do you even start? So many things. I mean, your message last Sunday really challenged me um, as you unpacked um, the seven churches and also zeroing in on the church in Laodicea mm. and what it means for us to be faithful and not rely on our own strength and our own resources, Yeah, which is so something that in the West, talk about oh, like we man. are deeply entwined yeah. with the empire of the West, its wealth, its strength, yeah. and, it, and it can be in church. And yeah. we can start thinking we're strong and immovable and powerful because of our resources and money and all the things we have rather than a deep dependency on God for us to be hot and cold, cold mm. as you unpacked as a refreshing stream mm. um, and hot as, a, as healing waters. Yeah. And the way, I mean, everyone should go back and have a listen to that because it was just so well expressed. Um, but I was challenged because I realized, yeah, I do that in my own individual life. I've oh, seen yeah. us do this in church. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we need to ask God to help us get um, the tentacles of empire off us mm. so that we're deeply reliant on the spirit of God to mm. remain faithful and to keep questioning the ways that we see that in our life. Yeah. And I think it's that I found really challenging is being that faithful witness because that John that's what John is calling the churches to um, and through Jesus and it's that constant let you know Jesus says in all of those letters let he who has ears or the person that has ears let them listen to what the spirit is saying which I think is just such a profound thing anyway like that the repetition of that 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 gets repeated seven times Mm. is such an important thing because for us still to have ears to hear what the spirit is saying but just that faithful witness what does it and what does it look like for us now to be faithful witnesses of who jesus is um in a world in which even in our own christian world i feel like is becoming harder to even uh i find myself it, it almost feels hard being a Christian within Christian circles of what it actually looks like to be like Jesus, mm. not what it looks like to be maybe what we've built up as children of God in which we are uh, conquering or we are powerful, but what does it actually look like mm. to be followers of Jesus? Yeah. And there's a, it, I feel like at the moment there is a real tension there of it. Yeah. 
maybe we have to really we really have to look at what does it look like to be followers of Jesus? How are yep. we faithful witnesses in this world that we live in now? Yeah. That is really broken still. I I think what has deeply impacted me has been when you realize that the image of God that we're to worship is the slaughtered lamb who's mm. victorious over sin and death. Um, and that's who and how we are to be. Yeah in faithfully following where to follow that way that actually changes the way that you think about being in my context a father a husband yeah because if i'm deeply connected to the idea that my god is this powerful lion who's going to defeat this dragon so this battle that's unfolding in the book of revelation is um who's going to win mm. um god or the dragon and what's god like god is this powerful lion he's stronger and tougher than the dragon he's they're going to have this battle yeah and the lion's going to win so it's strength and might and being in control and yet the image over and over and over again is not that yeah it's surrender it's laying down your life i'm like ah now if i'm going to follow the way of the lamb that's going to impact the way that i parent my children Mm. the way that i lead the team mm. or you know like am i leading in that way yeah am i and, laying my life yeah. down for others in a non-violent non-controlling way yeah. or am i using power to try and do god's ways yes because i think there's there's almost a dis and again we when we look at the the readings that people have had or interpretations of this book that have been used with this idea that you know there's going to like it's power and god jesus has kind of come back and it's going to be this you know but all of new testament and when you look at the gospels when you actually look at jesus (laughs) they didn't no one writes about jesus as Mm. that yeah john doesn't even like that's not even you know in revelation what he writes about jesus but what does he have jesus saying blessed are the peacemakers blessed are the poor you know, or it, it's all of the beatitudes. Yeah. It's all of that, and we, I, yeah. There's like, we seem to throw all of that out when we come to Revelation yeah. and think it's just going to be this amazing, victorious battle where, like, yeah. we're finally victorious over all the enemies. Yeah. But that's, yeah, it's a victory that comes about through sacrificial love. Yeah doesn't use any of the systems of this world yeah and i think that i was talking who was i talking to maybe my mum about this that like again it's um we still i think sometimes want jesus to be the messiah that the jews wanted their messiah to be yeah we still want that that messiah right and we haven't got that one, so we've tried to we've tried to interpret things to make it look like he might be that, yeah. but that's not the Messiah that we have, yeah. and that's the the real challenge there. And yeah, because it it looks on a human level, at least around what gets celebrated in our world, is it looks like weakness. Yeah, like the meek look weak. Mm. No pun in, you know, I didn't mean peacemakers. to Peacemakers. Peacemakers just... don't sound, they just sound like, oh, it's passive, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it always feels, but it's actually not. 
engage it's actually courage it's faith mm. it's the greatest form of strength from god's perspective because love which is who god is is the power that actually transforms the heart yeah human power over somebody else never really transforms hearts no conquering going in and conquering taking by force right. is never going to yeah. change someone for the good <laughs> yeah and also to your point that you just said around um how the jews wanted to see their messiah the the whole story of the world which is also the christian story too has been um the people of israel wanted to be like the other nations mm. they wanted to look successful they wanted yeah. to look powerful so they're like god give us a king and he's like i'm your king and here are these judges and you know, we're going to do this differently. And they're like, no, no, no. And they just keep asking and asking. And then God said, all right, you want a king? You can have a king. Let's yeah. see how that goes. Doesn't go very well, does it? It goes terribly <laughs> for them. And mm. until ultimately God mm. comes as king yeah, and establishes his kingdom. And they all get a bit excited like, okay, yeah, what we're hoping for the future is going to happen. And then he disappoints them all. Yeah. Because he's going to, what? You're going to lay your life down? Yeah. And then everyone's mocking you, Jesus. Like you're on the cross. You look weak. You, This isn't how it's meant to be. Yeah. And so, you know, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Like what's going on? Everything's flipped. Yeah. 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 And I think even to that point, even in the imagery that we have um, of Jesus coming back that John writes and he's on the horse. Yeah. But it's significant that, his robe it's drenched in his own blood and and i know you mentioned that so i'll let you talk about that but the significance of that because people go but isn't he coming back on a white horse and he's yeah but what is actually happening there Mm. yeah so in revelation 19 so you've got this story that's coming out from these three lots of seven um judgment accounts which is really um I think a helpful way to look at that is to not see this as three um, different time periods of seven judgments, but to see this as three different angles on the one unfolding story throughout Mm. history Mm. that now um, at least just, just this one verse talks about this battle where the nations come together to rage and to war, which is where this whole idea is unfolded around the Battle of Armageddon. Yeah. And um, it's been blown way out of proportion. And so the idea is that one day, literally on earth, um, in Megiddo, in Israel, all the nations are going to gather. And then Jesus and his people are going to come. And there's going to be this massive battle. And Jesus is going to win by slaughtering them all. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. the idea. That's and the everyone's idea. gearing yeah. up. So that's why people get excited about all these things that are potentially happening. Because they're mm-hmm. like, oh, we can see how this is building to that moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, but that's not the story. <laughs> the story is they gather and first of all, you've got to remember, this is symbolism. Yes. This is not literal. This is yeah. symbolism to jolt us. But even in the symbolism, no battle actually ever takes place in that sense. Mm. What happens is Jesus comes back on a white horse, which is symbolic of victory. And his weapon in this context of language is a sword that protrudes from his mouth. Yeah. He's named Faithful and True. And it's, his, it's the word of God. It's mm. truth. And it's, that is what defeats sin and death. Mm. Um, that is what puts a stop to this whole thing. 
Jesus never actually fights a literal war because that completely contradicts everything Jesus was about. Yeah. But he does come back and his word is what judges the nations. Yeah. Um, and some repent. And in the story, some seem to not want to follow. They want to follow mm. the way of the beast and the dragon. Yeah. And they don't. And so ultimately Jesus judges that and he, he, he finally deals with that, um, that evil. Uh, in this story and in this narrative. Yeah. But this this is nothing like what people have conjured up in their heads around yes. how this is going to all end. Yes. Or that we've seen in certain adaptations of certain novels. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that Books, terrified series, me as a child. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I think um, – and. In the weeks to come, and and we'll we'll continue to unpack it, and you get the great fortune of talking about the judgments mm. in our. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure you tune in for that. That'll be great, and then and looking at that hope and New Jerusalem, and that kind of thing. And I think, I think this is also relevant, and I think our timing in doing this and having this discussion and our series with what's happening in the world at the moment. I remember when we started the series, which was only four weeks ago, and everything started to play out yeah. in the Middle East and going, oh, my goodness, this is the worst timing ever. <laughs> <laughs> I had a sense of dread actually about yeah. because this is so yeah. – people have got such strong ideas. But I guess yeah. the beauty in this has been, one, being able to maybe take away fear from a text – and for people who might live with a sense of we've just got to be scared all the time about everything. But I think also for us to be wise in what's happening in the world at the moment, wise with what mm. we say, how we pray, yeah. um, and wise in how we consider who Jesus is and what that might look like for us as the church in being faithful witness right. in a time in our world that desperately needs us to be faithful witness yeah. of Jesus. Oh, there, like there can be nothing more powerful in this particular time than for us to return to how Jesus called us to pray. Our mm. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. Mm. That's come here mm. on earth mm. as in heaven. That's not what we've ended up having a theology of for the last 150 years as God... May we get out of this broken, messed up world yeah, take us and out. go to be with you in heaven. <laughs> yeah. And can we bring as many people with us as we can? Yeah. Come on, people, like respond and let's all go together. Yeah. That's just not the story. The grand story of Revelation and the entire New Testament and scripture is the coming together of heaven and earth as this marriage, mm. God coming to finally deal with evil and mm. restore all things. Mm. And we play a critical role in that, in praying and then living out God, what does it look like for me today while this war rages in the Middle East and in Ukraine and Russia and in Africa and mm. all these places, wherever we see hell, mm. in a mm. literal sense, mm. we're invited to be all the things Jesus invited his disciples to be, to be peacemakers, to mourn um, with those, to be compassionate and caring and people of justice who yeah. actually don't try to escape and get away going, oh, see how it all unfolds, yeah. but actually say, what's our role? in testifying it's like to a the prophetic radical call, love of Jesus. right of right. being yeah yeah that's yeah. exactly it testifying to that that love of Jesus is and i think if we're going to be scared or fearful of anything it's almost the 
the fear that we're not going to be faithful. Yeah. Like, because I'm like, oh, gosh. And that's why we need to be dependent, as you taught last Sunday, on Jesus not rely on our own strength. Yeah. We can only love well in Jesus' strength. Yeah. That's good. Mm. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We really hope that it has sparked your interest and raised some new questions. We want this to be a space to ponder, to ask the big and small questions. So if you have a question of your own, you can send that through to H. Bartle. Bartle is B-A-R-T-L-E at goodlife.org.au. And stay tuned for the next episode where we're going to use those questions for a Q&A with Mike and Hannah. This podcast is made possible by an excellent team of human beings. So a big thanks to Josiah Niven, Cherie Allen, Greg Forrest, Mike and Teresa Hardy, Amos and Hannah Bartle, Emma Bell, and the countless other encouragers, friends, and colleagues who continue to support the Good Life mission of building community, fostering health, and offering hope to all people. Make sure you follow our socials, like and leave a five-star review, and you can listen to our sermon series available every week in the same podcast feed. Peace.